How do we talk about race when it comes to the delivery of equitable, compassionate healthcare centered on both individuals and communities? Let's talk all about it with racial equity coach, keynote speaker, and thought leader, Milagros Phillips, right here on episode 305 of the Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. In these days of the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm still bringing you my monthly pandemic updates at the end of every month. Meanwhile, this podcast continues to be all about you, your personal and professional development, your nursing and healthcare career, and the healthcare system as a whole. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, entrepreneurship, medicine, and far beyond. I love having you along for the ride, whether you're new to the show or you've been on this journey with me for months or years. And I thank you for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. And remember that Nurse Keith Coaching is your destination for all things related to your career. Let me know you're a listener and you can receive 10% off your first coaching package. So just email me today at keith at nursekeith.com to schedule a complimentary chat. The show notes for this episode that you're going to want to check out to learn more about Milagros Phillips and her amazing books and work will be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 300. And like I said, today we're joined by new friend of the pod, Milagros Phillips, a renowned expert on race and racial bias, as well as how to bring racial equity to the healthcare space. That's what we're focusing on today. And Milagros, we're going to talk about your incredible work and your bio throughout the course of the conversation. And my first question where I just kind of want to dive into the fire with you is just to ask you, what at this point in time, are your hopes related to the ability of the American healthcare system to address race in a way that helps us bring more equality to the care that we deliver? What hopes do you have? Thank you so much for inviting me to be on your show, Keith. I really appreciate that. And my biggest hope would be that healthcare professionals become race literate. And by race literate, I mean having a conscious awareness of the ways in which race and racism impacts people of color, and in particular, Black people in this country. Mm -hmm. And so that would be my biggest hope is that people become race literate, that they learn more, that they understand the history. I mean, we carry the history in our bones. We carry it in our bodies. Mm -hmm. And so understanding that in terms of healthcare, I think, can be extremely important. That's a great response. And when you say race literate, then let's talk about what that truly means. And then I want to touch on, you know, what are the reverberations of that when race literacy becomes part and parcel of healthcare delivery? So when you say race literacy, many people might have different thoughts about what does that truly mean? You know, does it mean I use the right words? You know, does it mean I monitor my thoughts? You know, so how would you define it? Sure. So race literacy for me, and I defined that in in, um, a couple of my books, actually. Um, My first book, which is 11 Reasons to Become Race Literate, Mm -hmm. where I talk about um, race literacy is the conscious awareness of the history of race and an awareness of the ways in which race and racism has impacted us 
as a community, as a general community, whether you're black or white or a person of color, Mm -hmm. it's impacted everyone in one form or another. It's more visible when it comes to the impact on people of color. but it's a it's a conscious awareness of the history of race, the way that race impacts all of us and the awareness of how race and racism are institutionalized by the state. Institutionalized. OK. Right. Because because race racism is institutional, which means that a lot of the things that we experience have been turned into law. Hmm. It's systemic because what happens is when you turn something into law, you have to put together a system that upholds those laws, right? Internalized because you can't help but internalize the conditions within the country, state that you live in. And interpersonal because what happens is we act, react, and interact with each other based on what we have internalized, which is the stuff that's in the system. So, yeah, so I, I hope that that helps in terms of a definition of becoming race literate means having more of a, a, an education, basic education about race in terms of mind, body, spirit and emotions. So because it affects all levels of our humanity. It certainly does. And there's there's very specific research out there, evidence based research that racism experienced and lived over the course of one's life has physiological impact that is beginning to be measured. And then there's this Mm -hmm. spiritual and psycho-emotional aspects that are harder to measure, but we know are there, right? But we know it affects the physical body. And when we talk about, you know, African-Americans having a preponderance of certain diseases, whatnot, people have all sorts of opinions and judgments about why that is, and that can also reflect ways in which we've been, um, what's the right word? Conditioned. Conditioned to think yes. about yeah. people of color, for instance, right? Yeah. 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 And even the way that we tell the story, like, uh, so we often will talk about the research, you know, higher incidence of diabetes, mm-hmm. high blood pressure, you, you name it, right? Yeah. But within the context of telling that part of the story, what we don't talk about is how, Black people and people of color carry within them the um, in, you know many generations mm-hmm. of racial trauma, which is mm-hmm. the violence that is perpetrated upon them through racism, and they so so there's the intergenerational historical trauma that people carry in their bones, they carry it in their bodies, right? Um, and then there's the micro and macro aggressions that people suffer on a regular basis, like someone having a conversation with a coworker, and the coworker may say something that is very offensive to the person of color, and the 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 white person may not even be thinking that this is offensive because they have had a different experience of race in America. But a person of color who has been continuously, um, you know, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually and physically brutalized around this stuff has a very different perspective on what that person just said. The other thing is that because we've internalized racism, everyone has internalized the system, mm-hmm. but everyone has internalized it differently. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, they act, react, and interact based on how they have internalized the system. So, for instance, I'll give you an example. Let's say, well, very often we hear on the news, let's say there is a white male politician who gets on the news to defend another white male politician saying, oh, yeah, they accused him of being a racist. I know so-and-so. He's not a racist. I've known him all my life. He's never been a racist. Mm -hmm. Well, of 
course to you, he's never been a racist because mm-hmm. you're both white. And you're filtering it through your own experience and exactly. judgments and opinions. Ab- absolutely. And absolutely. Right. And the conditioning. Exactly. Mm. Where a person of color hears it through their conditioning and their experiences. And so they hear it differently. So we're literally speaking different languages. Yes. And, you know, and what I, one of the things that I tell people around this stuff is how we've internalized racism. And I'm going to use some words here that some people may hear and go, oh, that's not me. But it isn't. Let me let me first say this. Yes. When we talk about racism and I know that the word racist and so on is used to offend people. Mm-hmm. OK. Mm-hmm. So there's that reality. And now we're not going to hide from that. Right. But then there's also the reality that people have internalized a racist system and therefore racism lives in them in a specific way because it's a caste system. And, you know, I I talk about the history of this and and, um, I do a a weekly program in which I it's a race literacy program that I do every week with people who ever show up from the community to to learn more about this stuff. Oh, good. Mm -hmm. Very good. And so. So you have um, a caste system of the, that was established long before the, the Mayflower ever sailed to the continental USA. Mm. It was established in the Caribbean and all those places where, where the first Africans were being brought to work in the sugarcane plantations yes. and tobacco plant and blah, blah, blah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so, you, so you have that very specific system which people have internalized over time. And so if you are a white person, you've internalized the caste system as supremacy. So let me explain what I mean when I say the word supremacy. Please do. Supremacy comes from the word, um, it, it, it's actually from a French word, but so I'm not going to get into all of that. But, but what I will say is that it comes from the rights of kings, hmm. the right to rule. The right to be and to have and to to um, express yourself as being superior or greater than everybody else that the king in the kingdom. Okay, Mm. so so that's where it actually comes from. And I'm going to talk about how it got co-opted into into racism. And so so whites have internalized that as as this supremacy, which is a form of superiority, which is I'm greater than, better than, more deserving than and so on and so forth. It's a caste system. That's how people have been conditioned. If you are a brown person, you internalize that caste system as colonization and servitude. Mm. And 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 I'll explain how all of these play out today. Okay. And so, so you have these people that came from other places and colonized the land you were on, made you move away from your land, took over your land. Mm -hmm. And so, so you've internalized that system, that caste system in, 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 in that same way. So you've internalized it as colonization or being colonized uh, and being in service to your colonizers. Mm. OK, mm-hmm. if you're a black person, you've internalized it as colonization and enslavement. The land was taken over and you, you know, particularly those people who were taken from the African continent, because you have to remember that the Africa, the African countries were colonized. Many of them were not all of them, but the many British, of them were the colonized French, by the Portuguese, ex- the, the, English, Portuguese yeah, the Dutch and, and the Germans and, right. and so on. So everybody sort of went over there and took over that land. Mm. And there there are there there's historical context to that. Sure. 
you know, there's this thing called the doctrine of discovery Mm -hmm. that allowed all European nations, pretty much eventually all European nations, particularly after Columbus went back, showing that he had, you know, gold and silver and all this wealth that he amassed. Right. So then everybody wanted to come over and take over all these various places in the world. So you have so you have all of that and, and, you know, and and the history, then people internalize that history. Right. Mm. And so. So you have people who have internalized it as supremacy, colonization Mm -hmm. and enslavement. And and people speak out of those filters. So so in other words. A white person doesn't see racism the way that a black person sees racism as readily because they're looking at it through the filters of supremacy. Of course. And so through those filters, you don't see it the same way as somebody who who has embodied it as colonization or has embodied it as enslavement. And, you know, so that's what happens. So you end up having conversations with people and everybody speaking through their filters. So it's almost like everybody's speaking a different language. Thank you for contextualizing this. And you have a glossary of terms in your book that opens the book. And this is the book, Speaking um, Speaking Race and Healthcare, a Manual for the Dialogue. And the glossary is really helpful because it helps us start to pin down what these terms mean. And I just want a really quick tangent. I just want to say I've lived for 10 years in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And Santa Fe has a more than 400-year history of the Native Americans being here first, then the Mexicans coming in and taking over. We've had the seat of three different governments in the Palace of the Governors at the Santa Fe Plaza over the last 400 years. We've had the Spanish government, we've had the uh, Mexican government and the American government. And the, the, the enmity between what's considered three races here, they say we have the Spanish, we have the, the Anglos, I'm called an Anglo here, and we have the Indian. And the enmity between those groups, especially the Spanish and the, and the, um, the native groups here, is, is palpable to this day, 400 years after the reconquering of Santa Fe um, for over 400 years ago. So in every little community, we also have those little, we have our little um, uh, context of supremacy, domination, enslavement, et cetera, right? So we have the the big context of the United States and the Native Americans and everything that happened with slavery. And then we have all our little communities where where that exists. Like say New Orleans probably has its own little, has its own stories, right? Yep. It's yep. it's yep. fascinating and tr- very troubling at the same time. Yeah. And Of course it is. It, yeah. And you have a passage in your book that you and I discussed um before about, um, I think it was generational trauma. Is that Mm -hmm. right? Would you mind reading a little bit of that? I think it would be also another way to contextualize where you're coming from. And this is incredibly helpful. And this this conversation is just the tip of an enormous iceberg. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So chapter three out of uh, Speaking Race in Healthcare. Mm Intergenerational and historical trauma. We do people a disservice when we separate emotions, mind, and spirit from the human body. America's history of race and racism 
the traumatic events and experiences of Afri African Americans and the intergenerational effects of these experiences should not be underestimated or ignored when dealing with healthcare in these patients and clients. The history of African Americans has been and continues to be brutal from economic to psychology, from environmental racism to redlining, to continued violence perpetrated upon people of color takes its toll on their health and well-being. Moreover, the trauma of their violent history has been passed on from generation to generation without the benefit of healing. While mental health is mostly stigmatized in these communities. Add to that the microaggressions of everyday life and the extra stresses become monumental. And, you know, and, and I'll stop there, but it's so important for people to, people in healthcare, to understand that you're not just working with that body. That body is carrying the history of other generations. I mean, we now know that you pass on trauma through epigenetics. And so, so what we are looking at is many generations of trauma. You know, I remind people there's this, uh, this great experiment that was done with mice. And um, it's called the cherry blossom experiment, where they were uh, pumping cherry blossom fragrance into these cages with... Um, with with mice in them and they were then every time they pumped in the oil they would electrocute the mice after a while you didn't have to electrocute the mice all they had to do was smell the cherry blossom oil and they would go into what we call post-traumatic stress right because they're no longer experiencing so it's past mm. they found that the next generation of mice that descended from those mice that were originally traumatized, acted more traumatized than the first generation. So I have a little theory around that. My theory is the first generation knew something, somebody's doing something to us, something's happening, mm -hmm. right? The second generation had decontextualized trauma. They had no context for the fact that cherry blossom oil would freak them out, right? And so they acted out of that trauma without having the benefit of the awareness that something had happened. They found that that trauma was passed on epigenetically for six generations. You add the first generation to that, and that seven full generations of mice were affected by what happened to the first generation. And don't the Native Americans talk about always thinking about the seventh generation and whatever action you take? Absolutely. Isn't that fascinating? Yep. Yeah, that's not yep. a coincidence, is yep. it? No. no, and we know this from studying survivors of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. We know this from studying survivors of the of you know the Native Americans that were sent to those private schools, and mm -hmm. you know one of which so, we and, have and, here in Santa Fe. Yep. Yeah. Santa Fe. And, and the school. other thing, one of the things that natives do, which is which is fabulous and is powerful around healing intergenerational stuff, mm -hmm. is the, is they do something called soul retrieval. And the, 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 the premise around that is that every time we're traumatized, we leave behind a little piece of our soul mm. and we have to go back and reclaim it, mm. you know? And so, you know, and, and, and there's a lot of, the trauma piece is huge for, for people working um, with people of color 
around healing of any kind. Yes. Nursing, medicine, psychology, psychiatry, yep. you, you name it. And, you, you know, you mentioned yep. the, the generational trauma and the Holocaust. And, you know, I come from a Jewish family that goes back as many generations as you can count on both sides. And mm. my father's family, actually my mother's and father's families, both fled Russia, Prussia, whatever that area was back around 1903, 1904. And that was during the pogroms, which was what is considered the pre-Holocaust Holocaust when Jews were being persecuted. And they came to the United States and our name was Kosden. It was changed to Cohen at Ellis Island for some strange reason. And Kosden was easy to spell and say, but they changed it. And then we have the paperwork from 1921. We have a copy of the court order to change the name from Cohen to Carlson. And the way that the reason they chose Carlson out of the phone book, we believe, is because it was the most un-Jewish name you could possibly find. And what the judge wrote was that the 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 racism and the bullying and the the um just the poor treatment that the kids especially were were receiving having the name Cohen in school was reason enough to allow the name change. But also my great uncle couldn't get into medical school with a Jewish name. And as soon as he changed his name to Carlson, he got into medical school. So, you know, that's a very small example. But you're saying that that these traumas, like say the enslavement of Africans and then sharecropping and Jim Crow and the civil rights movement and police brutality and the Black Lives Movement, Black Lives Matter movement right now contemporarily, that it's all connected, that you you can't take any out of context, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So as a healthcare provider then, when we're treating people of color, whether whether it might be... uh, Asian community, the Native American community, the Black community, etc. What are the things we need to understand about terms like anti-racism versus healing racism, or mm. or just the 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 notion of intergenerational trauma? What is what's one of the first places that we need to begin? And then when we come back from the break, we're gonna we're gonna take a deeper dive. But where do we first start? So if you, first of all, the difference between anti-racism and healing racism Mm -hmm. is that in anti-racism, what we do is we give people information that they may not have. Not a lot of historical, but sort of more of the research type of information, Mm -hmm. like, um, you know, what happens during redlining, um, what... um, you know, why people behave the way that they behave and all those kinds of things. Okay. The thing about that is that it doesn't have the deeper context of the history. Healing racism follows the, the, the general edict of how do you heal? Like the, when we go to the doctor, the first, well, used to be the first, now it's the second. The first thing they ask for is your your medical card, yes. right? Your your insurance. Let's make sure you can pay. Mm-hmm. But anyway. That's another conversation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Beyond <laughs> that. The, so the second thing they have you do is fill out this huge form of your medical history. We call it medical history. And what it is, is the history of your ancestors. What happened to them? Did they have heart condition? Did they have cancer? Did they have, you know, uh, what happened to your relatives? We need to know that history 
so that we can, as we look to see what is going on with you today, come up with a prescription that's going to help you get better tomorrow. Mm. Mm. Healing racism follows that same pathway. We need to understand the history to understand why we are where we are today. And we need to understand what, where we are today so that we can then become creative about our tomorrow. So if we're going to create a different tomorrow, we have to have a different consciousness, which means we need new awareness, which means we need new information. Right. So because it's, it's the old Einstein saying you can't solve your problems with the same mindset that created it. And doing the same thing today that you did yesterday and the day before and 100 years ago, expecting to have different results is the definition of madness. Very true. Right. Mm-hmm. And so so we have to think differently, have a different mindset. And we do that in healing racism by understanding your history. So one of the things that I do with my groups is I say to them, um, racism lives in your body because the body makes a chemistry for everything, right? So let's see what it does with with the word racism. And so I have people get quiet and, and we do a little exercise that helps them find racism in their bodies. And they're able to find it and, and, and pinpoint what it feels like in their body and when they tell me I and then I ask them where is it you know some people say well I I feel it in my chest this this tightness or I feel it in my throat or I feel it in my head I can tell them their family history based on that Hmm. it's it's as simple as if you're feeling it in your head, over your eyes, then you probably have a family history of migraines, of vision problems. You probably have a family history of sinus problems and things like that. If you felt it in your chest, you probably have a family history of uh, respiratory problems, heart disease, um, breast cancer, and all those kinds of things. Because where you store your negative energy is where your biological tribe stored their negative energy. And it's where you're going to get sick. Now, this might sound esoteric to certain people listening, but I think there's there's a lot for us to glean from this, especially when we're sitting in a room, talking with a patient, learning about their family, learning about their history, hearing their fears. If we have the time and we take the time to, to really go there. And when we come back to the break, I, gosh, I could talk to you for hours, but when we come back from the break, I'd like to dive into some specific things you do with your groups and some questions that you ask that I pulled out of the book that I would like to to dive into a little bit more. So we'll be right back for the second half of episode 305. So now we're going to take a pause for the cause for just a moment. Please consider becoming a patron of The Nurse Keith Show, just like other awesome listeners who value the show so much that they want to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. When you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support The Nurse Keith Show, you also get some pretty cool premiums and gifts from yours truly. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith to read all about it. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Nurse Keith. 
And if you know someone who could benefit from career coaching with me, please consider referring them. And if they become a paying client, you'll receive credit for an hour of coaching with me. And there's no expiration date on that credit, so you can keep it in your back pocket until you need it most. And remember that you can refer as many people as you like and continue to earn those coaching credits. What an incredible deal. And please head over to nursekeith.com and sign up for my newsletter, which comes out regularly and brings you supportive messages, updates from my blog and my podcast, resources, and all sorts of other stuff. Remember, nursekeith.com, sign up for that newsletter, and you'll also get a free download from me as my gift to you. Anyway, those are my sincere asks today. So now, Let's dig back into today's topic without further ado. And welcome back to the second half of episode 305 of the Nurse Keith Show. We're here with Milagros Phillips, new friend of the pod. She's a keynote speaker, TEDx presenter, three-time author, and certified coach. And she specializes in creating space for engaging in difficult conversations. And she designs strategic learning programs for clients seeking to enhance equity and inclusion, which she calls EI, by adding race literacy to their EI, not to be confused with emotional intelligence. And her programs use history, science, research, and storytelling to create compelling, life-transforming experiences that lead to understanding. And Milagros, we've been talking about specifically information from your book, Speaking Race in Healthcare, a manual for the dialogue, which I've read avidly over the last month or so. And because it was a PDF, I copied and pasted all these different passages from it into a <laughs> Word doc that I have here, about seven pages. And it's it's a fantastic book. And we've touched so far on the notions of intergenerational trauma, which you read a beautiful passage from your book from, which I did actually highlight in my notes. And we talked about the difference between healing racism and anti-racism and uh, quite a few other concepts that you've brought to light. And the glossary at the beginning of your book is in it, in and of itself extremely helpful as you define terms that are so important for us to understand. And as we delve deeper here into the notion of how we as healthcare providers can approach our patients and healthcare delivery and the communities we serve in a way that takes their intergenerational trauma into account and also takes into account our own internalized racism and the ways in which we think because we've been conditioned to, right? You mentioned the system, politics, all the machinations that have been created to support whatever it is that's been created here in this country, for instance. So I, I see you on Zoom here. You're looking at your book, and I'm, I'm curious. I bet you have something um, very, very important to say right now in, in response. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one of the, the things that uh, racism does is it dehumanizes people. Mm-hmm. And it also separates people at levels that we don't always quite understand. And one of the ways that um, racism really begins to separate people is that there's this perception that people of color are different. 
Like they're genetically different. You know? yes. <laughs> and so one of the first things that I explain to people is that race is a human construct. It's a 500 year old human construct. Before that, people would judge each other by their religion. They would judge each other by the work that they did. You know, they even would get their names by certain physical characteristics or, or work that they did, like the gardeners, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the smiths, you know, the, yeah. the, the shoemaker, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, so so this, this idea of human beings being different from one another is new, but it also isn't true. We know that there are no genetic markers that differentiate one group of people from another. In fact, there, there are more genetic differences between siblings in one family than there are between people who are of different skin color. And so, so we know this, and it's just so important for people to understand that, that um, you know, there, there's one human color and it comes in many shades, depending on whether your tribe developed in places where it was hot, where the sun was beating down on your skin all the time. Mm-hmm. And so what melanin does is it protects the skin from, from the sun. If your, your biological tribe developed in colder climates, then you develop differently. It's estimated, uh, scientists estimate that it takes about 20,000 years for you to lose your melanin because we're all Africans uh-huh. and the human race has been traced to Africa you know, through, um, through, again, genetics. And so, you know, just really understanding that we are one human family and there's a one human color that comes in many shades, that all hair is protein. And the difference between straight hair, wavy hair, curly hair, kinky hair is the, the follicle, which is the little hole that the hair comes out through. And that, you know, human beings are extraordinary beings with, with a, 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 an inalienable power to heal and transform and be creative and create the kind of world that they want to see. But people need to honor who they themselves are and honor who other people are. And this whole race thing, it just keeps us from doing that. Well, so it dehumanizes all of us. Milagros, as you're talking, I'm, I'm I'm getting tears in my eyes hearing you hearing you recontextualize what skin color means, what hair texture means, and what and and the 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 threads that that connect all of us. And you know, it's easy to say, you know, we're all one, but you're you're also bringing to light things that I think we all it, that the science, the science is there behind it, but it's not what we talk about when we talk about race. I, I've never really heard it stated the way you just say, said it, and it's having an effect on me physiologically because I'm, it's, I'm tearing up as you say it. So, so what does that, what does that mean when we, when we hear such things and it touches us so deeply? What are we touching? Yeah, you know, it's so funny. Um, I joke because my when I was a little girl, my father used to say, we all have that we all have a truth gauge. Mm-hmm. And the truth gauge is is something that lets us know when we're hearing the truth. Mm. And what often happens when we hear the truth is is our heart opens mm. and we are able to hear more to breathe deeper mm-hmm. and to feel more connected to self and other and more grounded in our bodies. And so I, so 
the work I do, the reason I chose healing racism, like I could have done anti-racism, but I joke that even the best anti-racist at some point is going to need healing. And so (laughs) that seems very clear from your book. And so, so, so I actually started this journey Mm -hmm. not by studying diversity because I wasn't interested in that. I was just trying to heal myself. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And so I looked into all kinds of healing modalities and, and just really looked at what needs to happen for me to heal? Because I had done enough personal self-help work mm-hmm. that at some point I became healthy enough to realize that I needed healing. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's a good realization, you, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. And so, um, you know, so, so this work for me is about how do we, how do we connect those pieces within us that have been disconnected? Mm-hmm. There's this, um, this uh, author um, who's one, I was reading one of her books. I think it was Anatomy of the Spirit. Her name is Carolyn Mace. Yes. And, well. I, and I love her work. Yes. And, and I was reading, I believe it was in Anatomy of the Spirit when she's, where she said that if your heart and your head are in two different places, you will be an addict. You'll be addicted to some person, some place, something, because you're trying to fill the void. Mm between the heart and the head. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so this work for me is about filling the void so we can reconnect the heart and the head. Mm. So when we hear truth, we feel it, we sense it. Our bodies make a chemistry for truth. Well, I just felt it. So yeah. <laughs> I can I can attest to that. Thank you. And and this this makes me even more want to take part in some of your online workshops that my wife actually Mary has taken, and that's how you and I met because she's been in one of your groups. And, you know, gosh, I'd, I'd love to dive more and more into this, the psycho-emotional and psycho-spiritual, but I also <laughs> want to get to the, to the, the stuff that I think will help our nurse and doctor and psychiatrists and psychologists, brothers and sisters who might be listening to this conversation. And we'll have you back and we'll, we'll take deeper dives too. So, in the work you do, I know you have a bias test that you have people take, and it has people write down the first thing that comes to mind, the very first thing, if they can be as honest as possible, when they hear the word a CEO, an agricultural worker, a kindergarten teacher, a garbage collector, an art collector. So that, is, that could be in itself extremely eye-opening. And I just ran through some of that myself, just sitting here before you and I hopped on Zoom. And I, I thought, oh my gosh, there's a really lot to unpack here. And I had an extremely racist grandfather. So I heard some pretty awful things as a child. And I think a lot of people likely did. And he, he used words that still echo in my mind today, even though I don't use them, they're there. So this implicit bias that comes from conditioning, and what you mentioned as the larger system, it's all there. When you walk into the room with a patient, there's implicit biases that happen immediately. It, it's a trans, the person's transgender or they consider themselves non-binary. Okay, so my judgments are up, right? Yep. So, yep. and you ask some interesting eye-opening questions that we can ask about our organization. So I do want to dive deeper with you into that other stuff, but I also want to get into this organizational thing because 
-hmm. healthcare is in such need right now. And with communities of color being hit harder by the COVID-19 pandemic than, than white communities, even though say African-Americans are what, 15% of the population, but they're carrying this enormous burden of the pandemic. You know, why is that? Why is that? Oh, I I can tell you why. Please tell me, tell me, (laughs) tell me now. (laughs) So, so one, so one of the things that we don't consider when we, when we talk about those statistics is who is, who is, um, cleaning the floors yes. in the hospitals, mm-hmm. who's turning over the patients to change their beds, who is emptying the bedpans and taking out the um, the toxic stuff that, you know, that, you know, after surgery or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, who are you know, like uh, we who are the people picking the fruits? Yes. Who are the people working close together in the plants, processing the meats that we eat? Oh, the meat who packing are, you know, industry. You know, this is this is why. This is why it's hit harder. But but when we only tell part of the story, when we only say always oh, hit African-American communities harder than it has other communities and people of color. We're we're only telling a third of the story. Mm-hmm. The rest of the story is the why it's mm-hmm. hit them that hard. That's why I wrote that book. Yes. Because it was making me nuts that people would always say, well, they have higher incidence of this, that and the other. You know, I come from a very healthy family. Yeah. Very healthy. My mother lived to be 98 mm. and she chose to die that day. Mm-hmm. She was just like, mm, I'm tired. Yeah. And I gave her permission and she waited till my children got there and then she left. Yeah. You know, like, you know, my 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 oldest brother, I hadn't seen him in a while. And we came to my mother's funeral. He had a cane. He was 85 years old. And I said to his wife, oh, my God, what? Like, I was really concerned. Right. And. And I said to her, why is he walking with a cane? Like, what happened? She goes, oh, yeah, he was chasing a rabbit in the, <laughs> in the garden right. and he tripped over the hose. Right. You know what I mean? Like, this is who we are. Right. Yeah. So we're, we're really healthy. My grandmother um, during the, the uh, 1918 pandemic, my mother was eight years old at the time. Mm. And she and my grandmother were going from neighbor to neighbor, helping them and cooking for them. And, you know, people were sick. They couldn't take care of their family. So they would go from place to place helping people. And my mother said to me one day she got so scared because she's this little girl and my mother, my grandmother was a single parent. And so she's thinking if her mother dies, who's going to take care of her? So she says to my grandmother, she says uh, to my uh, to her mother, we have to stop taking care of these people, because if we keep doing this, we're going to die. And she said my grandmother looked at her very calmly and she said, that's not our disease. Keep working. Hmm. (laughs) That was it. My mother said. That was it. So I come from a very healthy, healthy thinking family. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when I hear things like, you know, that make it sound like black people are sicker than other people, mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't think so. Right. Because that's not a reality. And I have a huge family. I mean, huge family. And so and the men in my family lived to late 80s. My brother was 89 mm-hmm. when he passed away, you know. And so so for me, that's not real. That's not a reality. Yes. Right. And so I asked different questions. Mm -hmm. And so my questions led me to the research. And it's like, uh, look, are we looking at these other pieces? Because they're important in understanding your patient. You need to understand that it isn't just that COVID-19 has hit this particular group of people harder. It's that it's hit this group of people harder because they had greater exposure. Right. And it drives me nuts when people during the pandemic say, mostly white people say, oh, we're all working from home now. Isn't it interesting to be in the Zoom culture? And I say, yeah. And who's packing your groceries? Who's delivering your mail? Who's mm-hmm. packing the, tr- the trucks at UPS? Who's um, who's making sure you get your, your meat delivered 
and and processed at the processing plants where there's been, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people infected. And yeah. I think when you and I chatted, and I'm going to have the director of this film, when you and I chatted a few weeks ago, I t- mentioned a movie to you called Keepers of the House. It's on YouTube. I saw it. Yeah. I saw 15 it. 15 minutes, but it's about the people who clean and, yes. and disinfect our healthcare um, facilities. And yeah. those people are so important. So yes. in your book, you have a list of, let me see how many questions this is. You have a list of 19 questions that a healthcare provider or or an employee of a healthcare organization can ask themselves about their organization, especially when it comes to to race and how we how we how it manifests in our workplace. So what are several of the important questions that a nurse out there listening right now, say she works at a hospital in Oklahoma City, right? What are some of the questions that nurse can ask herself about her organization? So, you know, look at the leadership in your organization. Does the Is the leadership reflective of the people that you're serving in the community? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a really important question to ask, because if it isn't, that means that there are people at the table that are missing from the conversation that needs to be had around these, you know, how do you take care of a community of color? Right. And if they don't have a seat at the table, they're on the menu. That's what we often Ex- say. Yes, right? exactly. So leadership is the first place we look. What's another place yeah. we look or another question we ask ourselves? So, um, well, leaders, it's important for leaders themselves to um, who, who, who everyone looks to mm-hmm. as the ones who are guiding the DEI, you know, initiative in an organization. Like, you know, very often people feel like, well, especially leaders, they feel like, well, we turned it over to these folks, right, to take care of it. But if you're not showing up and you're not having the difficult conversations with your employees, you're missing a huge opportunity to make a difference in your organization because people are looking to you. Hmm. And if you show up to the diversity and inclusion programs and you ask important questions about that and you sit down and have conversations at the table, that's going to change the dynamics in the organization because people look to the leader. And if the leader isn't showing up, they feel like, well, why should I? You know, and eventually the stuff gets dropped, um, you know, and and the other thing that happens in organizations is people don't really invest in their DEI initiatives, the diversity and inclusion, equity and inclusion initiatives. Diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI. Yeah. So we we can look at the executives and then we can look at middle managers like department heads or unit Mm -hmm. managers, right? Which you would say in a hospital would be a unit manager, for instance. And then there might be a board of directors, say it's a nonprofit hospital. Mm -hmm. Then you have a board of directors. Does it represent the community? Are there members of the community on the board, right? Yeah. If you're serving a a largely um, Hispanic community, are there members of that community on the board, right? Yeah. Yeah. And also, are your employees class trained? You know, I I joke about, well, do they have any class? Okay, Mm -hmm. because class is so important, which is the uh, culturally and linguistically appropriate programs in a hospital. Called CLAS, right? Mm -hmm. Culturally, linguistic. Can you say that again? Culturally and linguistically appropriate 
uh, programs or, or services. Or services. Now, mm-hmm. Was that mandated by some um, certifying organization? Yeah, BLAS? actually. Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, it was mandated by the by the government. It was. And it's. Part, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, and you'd be surprised how many organizations don't even know it exists. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, a, let's say uh, someone who only speaks Chinese can go into a hospital and, and they can actually demand to get someone who can translate for them mm-hmm. um, and, and who understands their culture and all right. those kinds a of things. So, yeah. right. A trained you translator. Right. A trained translator. You shouldn't have to Medical lean on a family member. Right. It shouldn't be a family member that has to do that. That's mm-hmm. that's a burden and it should be a, a medically trained person who can do that. Yeah. So if, if an individual person, let's again, let's say a nurse, this nurse works in a very diverse community. She sees in her organization that they're really not doing this, that they, they aren't up to snuff in terms of class. They're not walking their talk. They might have great billboards out there in the community. They might have great ads on Facebook or whatever. And their brochures and their website have all the right photographs from stock websites of, you know, diverse, you know, and they talk about diversity and culturally competent, this and that. So, but if a nurse working in that facility or on that unit or in that agency identifies that something is wrong, something's rotten in Denmark, right? What does she or he do? What power do they have to affect change in an organization that is not doing the work or walking the talk? So um, it's interesting because that can be really difficult for people mm-hmm. who are trying to protect their jobs and trying to you know, do the best that they can within the context of the organization that they work in. So I would imagine that, and, and I'm not a hospital worker, so I'm not an expert on this, but, um, but I'm sure that you know, most organizations have EEO, which is Equal Employment Opportunity. Yes. They also have uh, places in their um, uh, HR department, human resources department, where they can go and they can say, look, I'm seeing this and I'm not comfortable with it or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and then they can work at it through through those means. They can find whoever their higher up is. And also, you know, when you do that, having a conscious awareness that not everyone's on the same page as you. And it's always a risk. Mm-hmm. It's always a risk. All of this stuff is a risk. So speaking out, pointing out the flaws or the 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 um, the pieces that aren't quite right opens you up to all sorts of things. Like I've seen in very small settings where I've worked over the years. I'm not a clinician now, but I've I've been over the last quarter century. Um, you know when we decided at this one clinic where I worked in a special program, we realized, oh, our intake form asks someone if they're male or female and we don't offer them any other choice or, you know, simple things like that. And then we had, actually, I worked in a HIV um, specialty case management program. And we realized that our intake forms also were not taking into consideration certain aspects of our patients' lives that need to be considered. And we had a fair number of transgender people within our our caseloads. 
And we realized, okay, if our, and I'll get back to the point in a second, but say a, you know, a trans man comes in for treatment, but he has not undergone gender affirming surgery and he actually needs a pap smear what are the microaggressions and macroaggressions that's going to cause that person to think, you know what, I'm never coming back for a pap smear again. So we can look at, you know, race, and then we can also loop in these other groups, right? So I've seen it in like little, all sorts of like little contexts, like this one, Mm -hmm. for instance, which Mm -hmm. really blew my mind at the time because we hadn't thought of it. Right. So if this nurse identifies something and she brings it to her organization, that's great. Maybe something will happen. Maybe she'll lose her job. Maybe people Mm -hmm. will judge her very, very harshly. Maybe she'll be rebuffed or maybe she'll be sidelined, perhaps. Maybe she's a nurse of color and it's even it's even worse because she's already been dealing with all these microaggressions all the years anyway. So if this nurse then wants to do some some racial healing like she realizes okay i can't really impact the organization so i want to do my own work do they where does she turn i mean she can turn to someone like you right Mm -hmm. so what happens when she does her own work how how will that benefit her and then her let's say her practice as a nurse what happens then so the so the first thing that starts to happen when people start to do this this inner healing work because mm-hmm. they they're getting a lot of missing information, right? So a lot of historical information that's very difficult that which is one of the reasons they don't teach it at school. No. But um and and so so there's a period which is what I call the healing crisis where you just feel like, "Oh my gosh, I'm overwhelmed. There's so much of this stuff," right? But what starts to happen as people begin to go deeper, I call it call it, I call it cleaning the inside of the cup, right? So you keep drilling down and drilling down and drilling down. You start to become more peaceful. You start to become more, excuse me, self-aware around the conditioning that you've received. You stop blaming yourself for being, you know, for having so-called racist thoughts or those kinds of things. You stop blaming yourself because you realize, oh, I've just been conditioned this way. You know, it it isn't, oh, am I a bad person because I'm thinking this or I'm thinking that. It's like, that's what I've been conditioned to think. As you become more aware of your conditioning, you start to make different choices. You know, so you start to ask different questions. You start to feel better about yourself because you're not carrying the guilt and shame and you don't feel so fragile anymore because a lot of the fragility has to do with not understanding the history, not understanding the conditioning, not understanding all these various pieces, right? So you start to own more of your power. You feel more aligned with the people around you, not just people of color, but everyone around you. You feel more connected to people. And and so as a result of that, when you bring up, because a lot of the times what happens is when people see something wrong, they bring it up in in kind of a blaming way. You know, like if... if um, there's something wrong with you or something wrong with this hospital or something wrong with what happens is you start to speak the language of wholeness or the language of, of 
of, uh, of personal power, which is more around making I state statements. I saw, I heard, I experienced, and therefore I feel because of what I saw, this is how I'm feeling. And when this stuff happens, this is what, you know, so you start to, to make I statements, which, which, are not the kind of statements that point the finger at someone else. I see. But they, they, you, you're starting to, and, and as you own more, you take more responsibility for your own feelings and your own emotions, you start to gain more of your own personal power. Hmm. And at some point, what people find is they, they start to experience this incredible sense of inner peace because they, they realize that I'm not broken. There's nothing wrong with me. I've experienced conditioning. So the bad news is, is that I'm a good learner. <laughs> the good news is I'm a good learner because I can take what I've learned and replace it with something new. So there's a sense of hope about you and you don't feel like the, the problem is so big that you can't manage it and that you can't handle it, which means that you get back your power. And this is what you bring. That's beautifully said first. And this is what you bring to individuals and organizations. So absolutely, as yep. we close, which I don't want to do, I honestly do not want to close. <laughs> I'm loving this too, Yeah, Keith. it's lovely. So <laughs> at milagrosphillips.com, people can read about and learn about what you do. And you're also on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn. And that will all be in the show notes so people can read about that. And you've been doing this for a quarter century, just like I've been doing nursing 35 for a quarter century. Years. 35 years. And <laughs> yeah. you co-developed the race equity framework model to end HIV for the National Minority AIDS Council. Yes. You helped to work collaboratively to develop the Congressional Conversations on Race Initiative, CCR. And you have a three-part approach to the race conversation that's basically the foundation for that CCR within Congress. And you're the founding executive director of the National Resource Center for the Healing of Racism. And there's there's much, 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 much more. So if if that nurse, let's go back to that nurse, right? We've singled out a person listening right now. Mm -hmm. If she wants to do some of this work and was just moved to tears by what you were saying, she can connect with you and do one of these workshops that you've been doing online during the pandemic, obviously, right? Like my wife did yep. and that I'm going to be doing, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, every every Monday at 12 noon, I do a lunch and learn. So an hour, an hour of race literacy. 12 noon Eastern. Eastern. Every mm -hmm. Monday. And then you have other workshops you do as well. Yes. Right? Yeah. There's one yeah. specifically for, for white people, right? Overcoming. Yeah. Racism. In fact, tonight, today during the day, uh, last week we did uh, black men healing from racism. Mm -hmm. Today we did white men healing from racism. Tonight we're going to repeat black men healing from racism at 7 p.m. Uh, and then, you know, we have every week we have different programs. Okay. Uh, there was one on race and spirituality, race and and. Uh, and healthcare, one, you know, so a lot of different programs every week. Right. So people can learn about that from milagrosphillips.com or Race Healer, which is on Facebook.com, and then Phillips Milagros on Instagram. So mm -hmm. let's say, not the nurse, but let's say a chief nursing officer of a hospital system or a hospital is listening right now and thinks, oh my gosh. I'd like to bring Milagros in to work with my organization or my entire nursing 
team for the entire hospital, can they also contact you to do something along those lines on a big organizational macro level? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that, that's most of the work I do. I mean, I do, I'm doing right now those smaller programs because I wanted the community to understand trauma and healing I see. Uh, after George Floyd passed yes. away. Uh, but I, but I, most of my programs are done in corporate America. I see. So. And in corporate America, does that include? As well as hospitals. Yes. Hospitals that includes and hospital hospitals systems. and nonprofit organizations and absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So a yeah. CEO or CNO or COO listening right now, a nurse leader can contact you and say, hey, we'd really like to take our work to the next level at our hospital. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Okay. So, and that nurse listening right now could go to her chief nursing officer and say, hey, I heard about this woman named Milagros Phillips and we could really bring that work here, right? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I love working with healthcare providers as well as educators because you know, this is you guys are doing the work. Yeah. I mean, you know, so yeah, you're in it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Milagros, this is so fantastic. And I want to have you back later in 2021 so we can just kind of take a deeper dive and talk more about the work you do and just kind of continue this conversation because it's absolutely fantastic. So thank you thank so much you. for your time and thanks for this great work you're doing at this very, very challenging moment. You know, we've had the ongoing pandemic. We've had the Black Lives Matter movement. We've had so many intersecting issues happening right now and people like you are really moving the needle and, and I, I'm very, very grateful. Thank you, Keith. Thank you for inviting me. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this fantastic episode of The Nurse Keith Show, all because of Milagros Phillips, our guest. Remember, the show notes where you can learn all about her are at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 305. And if you want to bring her to your organization electronically, digitally, or otherwise, please get in touch with her. I hope you feel uplifted, empowered, and thoughtful from this episode. And take that inspired action, whatever it happens to be for your personal and professional development. And the Nurse Keith Show is a member of Ars Longa Media, a collaborative network of podcasts and media entities dedicated to professional education and partnering to improve social ills. They're at Ars Longa Media, that's A-R-S-L-O-N-G-A dot media. And the Nurse Keith Show is also a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, along with Dr. Sanjay Gupta, the New Englander Journal of Medicine, Penn Nursing, Mayo Clinic, and many others. It's one of the largest and fastest growing collections of authoritative podcasts taking on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and excellence. And speaking of excellence, The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. Thank you, Rob. And Mark Cappy-Speeson is our stalwart social media ringmaster. Thank you, Mark. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, and new friend of the pod, Milagros Phillips, saying see you later from Washington, D.C. Beautiful Washington, D.C. Thank you, Milagros. Thank you, everyone. And we will catch you on the flip side. <laughs>